Hello, and welcome to the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival podcast. VanCAF is dedicated to celebrating comics creators and comics in all of its forms. Our festival takes place on the stolen, ancestral, and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. We are grateful to live and create here. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you'd like to learn more, head to vancaf.com. On this episode, writer Andrew Warner talks to artist Lee Lai about her debut book, Stone Fruit, out now from Fantagraphics. All right, so we are good. Okay, so I'm going to start officially, and um, uh, I'm yeah, I'm going to compliment uh, your book again because that's just what I do. And um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have questions coming out of that compliment, so don't worry. You won't just have to like <laughs> bat it like a like a limp piece of feedback. It's fine. Um, anyway, thank you so much, Lee, for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure. I. Uh, I think Stonefruit is just absolutely stunning. I honestly can't believe it's a debut book. Um, and also that, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you're 27. Uh, I'm going to just like s- sit with that for a long time myself personally uh, as a 42 year old. Um, but there's just, there's so much happening in the story and the artwork. And I think it is so intimate and thoughtful. And I just, when did you begin working on it? Like, how long is the process for this debut? Um, I tend to get my years real mixed up. So uh-huh. I can just say that it took, from the writing process to finishing the last bit of drawing, it was about three years. Okay. Um, and the first year was very, in a kind of piecemeal way, almost entirely writing. Um, oh, wow. Which I was doing a lot of other things. So I was like, going out of my mind busy at the time and so it was kind of nice to like I tend to rush everything I'm doing and just move fast and I'm not very patient and like to do things pretty quickly but um, I think it was helpful not being able to work on the script every day there was just other other shit I had to do um, yeah and so it gave me room to go away from it and come back and look at it with fresh eyes which I'm trying to force into my writing process now because I'm not as busy these days and I'm also writing and I'm finding that I'm pushing up against how long something takes versus how long I need, mm-hmm. versus how long I want it to take. <laughs> and so when I say a year of writing, it, you know, maybe it only accumulated to several weeks of actually sitting down and typing out the thing, but a lot of going away and coming back and figuring out the script. So the, the script is first for you then? Not anymore. And I, I okay. never, it never really appealed to me to do it that way in the first place. It's more just I did not have time to start a comic um, when I was working on the script, but I did want to try doing a long-form project. Um, and so I just worked on the script. It was actually it was part of a script writing uh, class that I was taking um, in a course that I was doing in uni where we had to work on a script and we keep resubmitting it for the, every project that, that was for the class. And so we, we workshopped each other's scripts and every time we would convene, we'd, there was the expectation that we would have a new version of the same script that you just keep polishing mm. and polishing. And so it went from um, an idea that was very unfinished and not figured out to more or less the first draft of the completed thing, but then went on to change a lot as I was drawing it. 
because as I started drawing and I think what I wanted the script to be changed and what I wanted the story to be changed. And so I just rewrote from there. That's so fascinating. I love that idea. I and, and while you were sort of describing that like revise and rework process, I was thinking so much about how that's like, that's really relationships. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you go in like, you charge into it thinking you have this really clear idea of what's going to happen and how it's going to be and how you're going to act and what they're going to say. And then it just runs away from you. Um, and I don't think, like, you know, some some writers talk about the characters kind of getting their own life and running away from them and, and, and kind of enacting their own decisions. And I don't relate to that. It's still, they're still just, they're in my control. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I want them to be and, like, what I expect them to be and also what I want them to represent for the story has changed. Like, they, those things change a lot. Like, when I started the story, I thought Amanda was just going to be a villain. <laughs> Yeah, Like she's the single mom in the story. And as I started talking about her with other people and writing more of her dialogue, um, what I wanted her to be in the story changed completely into like, well, just a more empathetic character, basically. Well, that's the thing actually that I found really wonderful about all of the so-called villains is I, I could really, I could really sort of like understand their own, their own fear and their own um I don't know their own issues that like sort of perhaps don't justify their actions but contribute to sort of like a just a more complex individual like not everyone is a clear-cut villain because you know that's that's actually probably not that interesting it's also just not like who is a clear-cut villain like yeah in general in life I I don't know any and I think the one, like even the most unpleasant people I've encountered, the more time you spend kind of getting to know them, they don't necessarily stop being difficult, but mm -hmm. the context muddies things and makes things more complicated. And I don't know. I, I think I was asked about it recently and I think I said something very cheesy, but probably something I still believe in, which is this idea of like no villains, only, mess only messes. <laughs> no villains, <laughs> only messes, did you yeah. say? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I think I still stand well, by that when I'm writing characters because I like writing messy characters. Um, yeah. And no one's perfect in this story, I think. And in the next book I'm writing, no, certainly no one's perfect. Everyone's pretty embarrassing. But, <laughs> like, I, ideally I also, I want to spend as much energy making them embarrassing and excruciating as I, as I want to make them, you know, relatable and worthy of compassion, you know? <laughs> well that's yeah like I mean I think that that's the that's a really wonderful thing that I'm I'm seeing sort of like more in uh more in the world as, at least in the corners that I sort of like hang out in a lot um just uh these ideas of of uh radical compassion and and empathy and um you know n like you know not to say that like you one has to tolerate intolerable behavior mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but to like think about um letting the compassion guide you as opposed to sort of the anger burn you up you know exactly yeah and it can be both <laughs> it, totally yeah yeah and obviously like there's that mess i love i love the idea of no villains only messes that's a 
That's a real like you're gonna see that tattooed on like, the bodies, <laughs> I think, as like as your creative practice evolves. That's gonna be great. I don't that's have any embarrassing words on my own body yet, but it's probably just a matter of time. A hundred percent. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, well, I, so, so tell me a little bit more about like constructing a mess. So, you know, I, cause I, I was thinking a lot about, um, <laughs> one of the notes that I wrote to myself while I was going through the book was like soft lines and harsh truths. Love and, um, <laughs> this, this sort of kept coming up to me over and over and over again throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what is like, you know, what, do, what do, what is it to create this like sort of like and particularly center the stories of you know all of these messy people who love this kid yeah well I mean I think I it's like I, I like a lot of writers and creators I know I like to use stories to figure out shit in my own life uh-huh. <laughs> and I wanted to write a story to to sh- to show the 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 idea of characters who are all wanting the best things. They're all wanting connection and understanding, and they want to be kind to each other, but they fully cannot figure out how to do it. <laughs> Sometimes, um, <laughs> yeah. and you know, they want to have healthy, thriving relationships, and they can't figure out how to do that. And I guess I yeah, I wanted to show relationships that are falling apart um, or or being rebuilt from from the ground. Um, where everyone's intentions are in the right place and yet things are still kind of running away from them um, and slipping between their fingers. And initially the intention with the book when I first started writing it was I wanted to show um, like Ray was a more two-dimensional kind of just like a good character at the time Mm -hmm. and I wanted to show her process of learning that she can't save Bron, that she can't be the person who's just the the, the amazing girlfriend who can pull Bron out of her depression. You just can't do that in that kind of intimacy. It doesn't hold up for a healthy relationship. Um, And the idea that you can't just like force your whole life into the ideological haven that it can be or that you want it to be um, and cut yourself off from the rest of the world. And then I think I got more curious about Bron later on and Bron's way of doing vulnerability and the idea that she's a little bit harder, deeper down than she is on the surface Um, and she's kind of grappling with the different versions of herself that she wants to be. Um, And then the more interested in her I got, the more the story kind of veered in her direction and then split in half. Initially, the, the first draft of the story only followed Ray. So Bron left Ray and then just kind of disappeared for a couple of chapters. Oh, wow. And then reconvened at the end. And I showed the first two chapters to a friend who was like, what happens to her? <laughs> I'm interested in seeing. <laughs> Why aren't you talking about her? And I was just like, I don't really know her well enough yet. Um, and so then I guess... I, like not, in a not particularly moralistic way. Like I, I don't think there's a there's a moral or a message at the end of the story, but I did want to kind of chew on these ideas. That, that there's been these life lessons I've been trying to recruit for myself 
over my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just keep trying to wrangle stories in the direction of those life lessons without very clear answers of, of what they are. Like I think it's the cliche that every year that you get older, the, the, the more you accept the things you don't know. <laughs> Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and so even though in some ways I feel uh, like there's a lot more life lessons that I've been dealt with and, and have learned as like truths that I carry for myself, there's there's no certainty to any of it. And I think I kind of just want my stories to go in that direction where it's just a whole bunch of oh, by the end of it, but um, the characters are more developed and they ideally know themselves a little better. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I don't think, like, tidy resolutions necessarily mean good storytelling at all, you know? Like, I think to see characters have just, like, some semblance of growth by the end of a story is an incredibly valuable story. I reckon. Yeah. I I, I was really struck by it. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that, like, Bronze story sort of didn't exist earlier because I... I was really struck by like the the at least the the sort of like sibling dynamic parallels that sort of shape um, that sort of middle section of the book, and I think I th- I thought it was really interesting to see, you know, particularly when you sort of find out in retrospect that Ray and Bronn are like really sort of a real kind of like rescue each other situation mm-hmm. and that kind of intensity and that survival mode intensity can make it very very difficult um to sort of evolve beyond that mm-hmm. together you mm-hmm. know uh and that they both sort of like touch back into their you know pre each other lives in a bigger way yeah um and, and build that up. Also, just like the sibling dynamics of both storylines. I have a sibling. Um, there's there's lots of complications there. You really nail the sibling dynamic <laughs> so well on like how just oh, it, just like people that like people that you know your whole life that um, you know whether or not you understand each other or create space for each other they can still set you off in these very intense ways so quickly. There's like a real shorthand to wild anger, um, but yeah. also a real shorthand to like coming back together. Totally. There's no best behavior, I think. And I think <laughs> part of that is maybe a, like a lack of disposability. And I definitely can't speak for all sibling dynamics. Like I have a sister. We're very close. We spent our entire early childhood being full war with each other um, and then settled into something pretty loving and pretty great as we got into adulthood, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least from my experience, there is something interesting in the fact that you can't really get rid of a sibling. Like you, you can not talk to them, but they're still your sibling. They don't lose that title. Um, And I think it makes it interesting to then like play with that relationship in a story because it can be stretched to its limits (laughs) Like people's patience can be stretched to its limit um, and you can feel incredibly antagonistic or antagonized, but you still, <laughs> there's still a, there's still a kind of unbreakable belonging, whether you, whether you want to access it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just interesting. Like, yeah, the book's dedicated to my sister. I 
I saw that. I thought that was lovely. <laughs> she doesn't know that yet, actually. Oh, okay. well, I mean, surprise. She's in, she's in um, Australia. She hasn't got a copy yet, so. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I did feel like, I mean, I know, like, obviously, everyone's relationships with their their siblings is different, but like, I mean, I we're only my sister and I are only thirteen months apart, wow. and that's like that is impressive. That is a close, fascinating, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I and I love her so much. But I also there's no one who makes me angrier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think Still. there's also like it's the it's the Still. thing of of someone having known you your whole life means they see your shit. And they can use that shit against you if they want to and vice versa. They sure can. They sure can. <laughs> you know, it's and and they can also get caught up in kind of like old shit, you know, like yeah, it's it's totally. it gets it gets nuanced and complicated as you sort of like evolve as a person. And um, uh, and it takes a long time sometimes, I think, to see each other as like fully like sort of autonomous adults, too. Yeah. Totally. Like you got a lot of the weight of the context, maybe decades. Yeah. Like with. every small argument has three to four decades worth of. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'm trying to explain that to people is weird, but I, I really, but what I, yeah. So, I mean, I also, one of the things that you mentioned just like a couple minutes ago was, um, about, uh, no, both Ray and Braun really want to understand each other and be understood, I think, mm-hmm. but like that they don't, can't always provide that for each other. Mm-hmm. They also, I think like a lot of us can't really, they, the understanding that they crave from other people, they also cannot give to other people. Yeah, totally. Um, and it, it, this this comes clear so often in every conversation. I just wanted to like intercede with the therapist. And I was like, Oh my God, we can do this. <laughs> I think the, like the thing I wanted to chew on in that is, is like the, the piece with about fear. Like, um, mm-hmm. and I, so Bron in the story is she comes from a very waspy Christian family. Um, and I, that's the part of the, of the whole character makeup that I just, have the least amount of experience in like I'm mm-hmm. not from a religious background um and I was a little nervous going into it because I was like feel a bit out of my depth but also I think particularly being queer and being from a, like I've been surrounded by queers since I was a teen now the common there is this thing that comes up pretty regularly that like a lot of queers I know are really scared of religion I think they have good reason to be um mm-hmm. but then it also like scared of religion and scared of you know, rural spaces, for example, like things commonly associated with histories of homophobia and pretty intense homophobia. Um, yeah. But the way that it sometimes manifests now, especially in like city spaces, is that um, religious queers and rural queers don't end up knowing where to be <laughs> and how to yeah. fit into that. And like you can't just put down your whole history and your whole context. Um, and so I guess the Christian piece was interesting to me as like, providing this aspect of Bron that Ray just doesn't understand and therefore fears because it's like an obstacle to intimacy for her and an obstacle to a feeling of safety. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think they're both kind of in the story. I mean, 
you only have so much of it before you start projecting, <laughs> I think, or like, I only have so much of it before I start projecting in terms of how much <laughs> I think I know these characters versus how much I actually wrote them down. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they're both trying to figure out the ways in which they don't know each other because there's aspects of each other they fear and therefore they don't know how to go about getting to know that. When, when the goal is closeness, and ironically, yeah. like the fear and the goal, or the, the fear and closeness are not able to kind of get in bed together, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that there are power imbalances that you address really interestingly that I don't even know that the characters would necessarily say are, I mean, I think that the characters maybe would think they're, they're in the back of their minds, but like I just, I see Ray. I, I, and again, this maybe is projecting on my front, but like I felt like Ray really has um, is so afraid that Bronn will leave her that Bronn holds a lot of power in ways that m- makes her feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Ray, in her biological relationship to Nessie, holds a lot of power that she doesn't fully understand um, because. Braun loves this child just as much, you know, and, and that breaking point of, um, when she, you know, when Ray says maybe she should go see Nessie alone, it's, it is, it is this like knife to the heart you can feel for Braun and the panel, like the next panel is like, we lasted four more months. And you're like, yeah, of course, like, come on, like, Ray, what you doing? <laughs> and I, <laughs> And I just, I just like, oh, no one really understands that, like, no, or maybe like just a lot of people don't want to understand sort of the power that they hold when they feel helpless or when they feel scared or when they feel fearful. Like, they just don't really want to look and think, oh, I have privilege in this moment. Totally. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. I like, I don't know what more there is to add. It's just, it's really hard to see that in, like, I, I found it really hard to, to recognize when I have power. When I'm also feeling scared, and fucking you know. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I, I think it's like it's it's just so, like the, the way that you are like articulating mess and power and relationships is really, I mean, it's just very thoughtful. Like, have like like so like, the background for where your interest in relationship development comes from, like. <laughs> A lot of soap operas as a child, uh, a lot of just like messy communications where you like always watching and being like, why aren't people talking about what they're actually talking about? <laughs> um, a lot of uh, real life in the house soap operas, I guess. Like um, very much as child of divorce. Like I did a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of- okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> High five. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. That's most of us these days, which is very refreshing. Yeah. It wasn't the case sure. at the time, but it is now, which is cool. Um, and so like, you know, as someone who also believes very deeply in love, I really believe in breakups and like the growth Mm -hmm. that can come from breakups. Um, and I think, you know, it's a very millennial thing, but I think, you know, often, I think I'm watching my generation and the generations below as well. And like, you know, really everyone of every age and particularly in queer spaces, like troubling what relationships need to be now like what they're supposed to be and you know they're no longer necessarily um the thing that people need to survive as a unit as like a kind of nuclear unit and so there's lots of just conversations around all the time about 
why people get into relationships and why they leave relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least when I was a kid, like, I was watching my my parents uh, split up very slowly and excruciatingly Mm -hmm. over maybe six years and having a lot of conversations. And I think one of the, uh, (laughs) in retrospect, one of the... um, the gifts of being an uncool kid <laughs> and having very few friends when I was like in late primary school, early high school was that I was a lot closer to my parents than a lot of other kids were. And they treated me like an adult and they treated my sister like an adult too, but she was cooler than I was. And so she was just out of the house more. Um, and so I ended up like in my tween and early teen years having a lot of really heavy, hard-hitting, emotional conversations with my parents about problems that I fully did not understand, <laughs> but was kind of like treading water like I did understand them and and feeling out the nature of, you know, messy problems that are kind of beyond what anyone has control over. Um, and watching yeah. two people that I had, like, a lot of faith in to, to be the archetypes of adults being over their heads in, in situations that, that were completely untenable, you know? Yeah. So there's like a little bit of Nessie there as like, <laughs> yeah. as the sort of stand in for you. Yeah. I mean, I think in her quieter moments, I relate to her more or I'm, you know, I put yeah. a little bit more of myself at a young age in, in there. And then her screamier, more fun moments, I think are more, um, like my sister at that age. I was a, I was a pretty <laughs> quiet kid, but I think I was surrounded by very outgoing people and I still am, which is wonderful. Um, and so it's kind of easier to put those fun, feral, screaming parts of Nessie. Like she, yeah. she's a bit of everybody, <laughs> basically. Well, and I really loved, um, I really loved the sort of like East Asian folklore uh, sort of, you know, hybrid monster versions of the three of them when they're playing together and to sort of like, I, I, the first, one of the first places I sort of was fully, um, uh, I don't, not introduced, but like, I don't know, just one of the first places that I really saw that in sort of graphic novels was just in, um, Rumi Hara's book last year. Um, uh, Nori. Oh, it's called Nori. It's really, it's really wonderful and it's it's very beautiful and um nori is a six uh four-year-old kid and um anyway super super great i highly recommend uh nori uh, but so to see sort of like to see them transformed when they're together into these sort of like uh you know wild creatures outdoors who can just really like they they're just having so much fun together and you can feel how much fun they're having together and then to sort of see those uh particularly when ray gets the call from amanda right away and um and then just like immediately loses all that fun (laughs) and and then switches again as soon as the phone's off um but and to see sort of how those uh representations of themselves how ron and ray carry them uh back home with them at least temporarily and then like until sort of like the nessie magic is gone mm-hmm. um it's a it's really like it's really beautiful uh and i'm wondering if you can talk about like um 
is that the first time this kind of imagery has like been in your work or is it has it gone has it been throughout your work it's definitely the first time and I found it real hard <laughs> like it I'm glad it reads fluidly and that you know what I was trying to do with the monsters seems like from your description it's, it seems like it it was similar to what I hoped it would be, um, which is great. But I think my my brain and my hands definitely want to draw realism. And my heart wants monsters and more colour and more loose, naive lines and things that I just, one day maybe I'll grow into that. Uh, but I think the desire to draw the monsters, aside from what they provide for the story, was definitely just to kind of, experiment in figuring out whether I could do something more playful and loose. Um, and I also just really love magical realism. Like for now, I want to keep writing stories that are apparently more adult that have you know sex and depression and difficult conversations in them. But I don't want that to be at the cost of the story being kind of fun as well. Yeah. Um, and so the monsters were also an attempt to have a bit of levity in the story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Plus, I don't think like any lives uh, are, de well, some, I'm sure, but most lives aren't fully devoid of joy. No. Yeah. Like, that would be bleak as hell. <laughs> um, one of the things, though, that like I also, I mean, I've, you know, I've got, a, I read a bunch of interviews with you about it because I was really blown away by it. But, and I say this like specifically as a fat person, but to see bodies that are not, fully just um like continuing to uphold like the thin fetif fetishization was and i i'm not saying that that's like your uh purpose necessarily but like my gaze is like oh bodies that are different and also very normal and actually reflect the world that i live in well, I'm, which is really great <laughs> i'm so glad <laughs> So thanks for that. I really appreciate that. I mean, it's also um, just not, it's not realistic to draw comics with only thin people in it. Like, you'd just, think. You'd think. And it's like. You'd think. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it, I, it reminds me of the question that I've been asked before about like, you know, representation and drawing queer people and like writing queer characters and stuff. And I'm like, it's unrealistic for me to write straight characters. I don't know many straight people, like, at all. Um, like, and not everyone I know is thin. So, like, and, and bodies are so fun to draw. <laughs> well, is it, but it's, like, kind of amazing to me because I've seen, like, some of the questions you've been asked about bodies through, and it's, like, even, so if you dare to have two larger bodies in your work, suddenly that's the whole picture that some people have picked up on. And I'm just like, you know yeah. that, you know that like there, there are studies about this, right? Where like you see one different thing and then that becomes like the focal point for your whole thing. And now anyway, yeah. I just was like, wow, it's just so nice to see something a little bit different, especially in a, a world where like comic arts should be imagining all kinds of bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or should be able to. Yeah. And I did like, you know, I don't think I go into building characters with a lot of political intent, even though I think I live my life with a lot of political intent. Um, 
but I think I have to be ready and braced for the fact that you know these stories and these bodies and these characters are going into a, a comic landscape that is changing, but is still like it's still a lot of thin people and white people. Um, and until it's not the case, and people are more used to seeing difference and not seeing it as difference necessarily. Um, I think I just have to accept that sometimes the books is going to be received or like my stories in general are going to be received as like about people of color and about trans people and like, like all these X, Y, Z, you know, different, different edgy <laughs> lived experiences. <laughs> um, when like, I don't really want to write about that directly. Like it's not what I'm interested in doing. Like I think some people are doing yeah. that and it's amazing and they're doing like really good jobs at that and creating beautiful, interesting, challenging work. I just don't think that's what I'm doing. Um, but I think it is a symptom of the fact that there isn't a lot of that out there at the moment, that it becomes like a, a focal point very quickly when people are reading these books. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I mean, I think in general – historically oppressed and repressed communities and people and identities like uh, they're not inherently political but they're politicized and yeah. that's what happens so often to the work as well yeah yeah yep <laughs> um yep uh one of the things that i thought was so interesting is that there at least to my recollection and please correct me if i'm wrong um, but there's, uh, there's no specific, specific mention of brawn, uh, and gender identity until sort of more in the last, like final third of the book. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know whether or not, like, please tell me if that's like sort of a deliberate choice. I read it as it's everyone trying to dance around something and not address it specifically until, like later so it's sort of like conveying um other people's discomfort not just sort of brawn figuring out her own identity mm -hmm. it's other people's discomfort until it's finally like named mm -hmm. um yeah i mean part of that was i think that's that's definitely an aspect of it i think part of it is also just i i don't think her being trans is a very important part of the story like it, it's relevant mm -hmm. and it affects things that happen in the story and like dynamics within relationships, but it's not, yeah. it's not a book about a trans person or about the trans experience, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I like so the I shoulder think, shake when you say the trans experience. By the way. I'm imagining like, like you know, capital T, capital A trans experience. I just, you know? I wish that this was visual for everyone <laughs> at home. The shoulder shake when you said the trans experience is great. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think part of it was just wanting to assert that it's, that, you know, I'm not, I don't think, I'm being direct enough, I think, that she is trans, but I don't think it's about that and I didn't want it to be a book about identity or a story about identity. Um, it kind of reminds me of, so I'm trans and I used to work in kitchens a lot and I've been visibly trans for maybe the last seven years. And so it's been this interesting uh, strategy game, I think, of figuring out how to be in spaces that aren't queer and trans majority. 
Um, and one of the things I used to do when I went into new workplaces was just be as stealth as I could for as long as I could um, so that I could create and kind of establish respectful relationships that were built on the ways in which I was interacting with people and how they were understanding me as a cook and as a person mm -hmm. and as a friend before I would out myself, which was just inevitable. Um, and so that even though maybe there would be reactions later on, they, they, they had a, a kind of fuller context of who I was. Cause I think sometimes when I've experienced someone being someone's first ever trans person that they've met, when that's the first thing they learn about me, it, it makes it really hard for them to engage with me after that point. And so mm -hmm. I, I, ideally I don't want a character like Ron to have to be defined by that experience or by her, for, or for her motivations to be defined by that, even though I also don't want it to be um, absent. Like I think particularly Amanda is dancing around it because she just, she, she's like, she doesn't really know what to do with it. And she's probably yeah. never experienced someone like that before. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so she just won't name it. Amanda is definitely dancing around it. And I just think about Bron's interaction with her mom and, um, and, and just sitting at the garden and, and the, the tension that sort of lives between them, even on the page. Like, it's not like, it's not like you're painting differently necessarily, but like, it, and, but the words, like there's, to me, there's a reason like that they are gardening together. There's like layers and layers and layers going on in the soil, connecting them. And, you know, they just, they just can't, they can't sort of bridge that gap between them at that moment. But yeah. I, I thought it was super interesting to, um, <clears throat> to just like, yeah, to just like come to, come, come to sort of aspects of this later. And also when we get to, Ron's family that's where we also get the like racism directed towards Ray and sort of holding these things uh all together um you know it's it just 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 the just these different things that again the power imbalance of um this sort of like white religious family mm -hmm. uh waspy family and the way that they uh associate so the angry asian angry chinese woman um and then your cool asian girlfriend like these are these are the specific direct references to race and mm. i thought um yeah like this is this is very precisely what it what it wouldn't look look and sound like from this like white family that's really like afraid of this woman's influence on their their child I definitely had some help with those kinds of phrases from uh, a friend who's from a wider waspier family than I, <laughs> than I, than I know about, you know. So it's like, that definitely felt like field research, you know. Like, what do these people say? <laughs> field research into the racism of white people. Yeah, I mean, look, someone's got to do it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> And again, like I didn't want it to be about that, you know, like it's, yeah, yeah. it's, 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 it's tricky writing something that is, that is and can be seen as a marginalized experience and not wanting to avoid the, that those things exist. 
um, like I think when no, that's a that's a tangent. I don't want to go down. It's 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 too much of a kettle of fish. I was going to say something about Bridgerton, but I can't. It's it's too much. So just I thought you know this is about um, graphic novels and comics. I should talk to you about uh, your you know your art style and how it has developed over the years, and uh, just ask you a couple questions about. Um, uh, I know we've talked about like sort of the the actual like the body shapes and whatnot, but I was wondering if you could um, just tell me a little bit about um, the color palettes that you work with and and how you you know how you go from sort of pencil to paint and what that looks like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm afraid I can't say much that's interesting about the color palette beyond I'm just not very good at working with colors, and then blue is the only one. <laughs> I just <laughs> I love colorful work like I think most of my favorite artists use color in really amazing powerful ways and I just do not have that in me I like I, I think I'm married to black and white for the most part and blue is the is the toe in the water or something um but I really like animations and I grew up watching lots of hand-drawn animations, stop motion animations, and the blue backgrounds in Stone Fruit um, were kind of figured out by looking at how watercolor backgrounds are used in traditional hand-drawn animations, like, you know, even the early Walt Disney stuff. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the figures would be moving on a different layer um, and they'd be a lot flatter and more simply colored or not colored at all. And so I've always loved ink and I probably will keep using ink it's so pleasurable to use and and brush so I use like brush uh, like really fine brush and ink for all the lines that the characters use so I'm looking at the pages (laughs) over on the right of my screen (laughs) just to remind myself how to work Um, and I don't think I could get the lines that I want to get unless I use that but I don't love when the backgrounds are made up of all those lines as well I think it gets really hectic and busy um, and I love the mm-hmm. ways in those early animations that the backgrounds kind of sink and melt into the into these soft watercolors. Um, yeah. And I'm not very, like, I, I really don't know what I'm doing with, with backgrounds normally. Like, this book was definitely an exercise in figuring out how to paint backgrounds and pushing myself to paint backgrounds. Um, I remember talking to Gilbert Hernandez at Cake one year, and he was like, oh, yeah, I don't know how to draw buildings. I can't draw a straight line. I hate using rulers. I just set all of my stories on beaches and in forests and stuff because it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> I really relate to that. <laughs> well, I mean, you fooled me because it oh. looks very, like, it looks quite masterful, like I have to say. I mean. It's all a scam, but thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I love I love to fall for scams. Uh, it's my only <laughs> this is the only kind of scam I want to fall for. Um there's particular like that panel that I mentioned earlier uh, where Ray is just um in her underwear crying on the sidewalk. It was a real that was a real that was a real kick in the the <laughs> gut. Uh it felt real. Um, <laughs> um but it's also very it's very um spare like it's not you're not it's not like a busy panel yeah I don't like doing busy panels like the whole book is uh four panels per page and 
I thought for a second, starting the next one, that I would do six panels per page just to shake it up and to challenge myself. And I hate it. I really like, <laughs> like, I think I can't get away from certain details just because there's a lot of stuff I want to draw on a face. Um, but I don't love it when pages get really busy. Um, mm -hmm. I, like, I, I grew up when I was, grew up, when I was a teen, I was reading a lot of Craig Thompson's work. Mm -hmm. And I was reading his interviews too. And he talks a lot about um, allowing the work to breathe and making things legible. And I think it's, to me, it's important that the comic is legible aside from being um, pretty and representative of what it's supposed to be. I think I just want it to, <laughs> from left to right, read easily. And so not, <laughs> not having too much stuff on the page feels pretty important. Well, and I mean... That's a, like, I mean, it's kind of nice when, you know, you reference Craig Thompson uh, as an influence and he's uh, one of the blurbs on the book. Yeah, I got like the, the two people. <laughs> I got so lucky with that. <laughs> I was like, just going to say, like, I mean, Jillian and Jillian Smaki and Craig Thompson, like that's an, those are incredible blurbs. I'm like a big nerd for both of their work and it was the, the the their comics were the ones I read when I was a teenager and you know figuring out that I loved comics and so definitely you know the teenage part of my brain is just still screaming about it <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool it's very yeah. I feel very lucky I'm screaming about it for you because I <laughs> love also both of their work <laughs> Yeah, like that's that's incredible I, and well deserved too. Because I feel like, yeah, I just, I mean, I know that I know that a lot of people have written very beautiful things about Stone Fruit so far, and I'm sure more will come over the next couple of months as the book sort of like inches towards its like official release. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, this is this is a pretty. Like this is a this is a pretty accomplished debut. Like it's so refined and so beautiful. Um, you know what? What are your hopes for um, for what you do next, and 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 how you're going to sort of? If, is it a totally different story next? Like what's what sort of? What are you working on? Um. I mean, I think my hopes are just don't shit the bed, right? Like this is my first, <laughs> this is the first time I've entered into the publishing world. And now, I, like I didn't write Stone Fruit thinking it was going to be published. Um, I wrote it just because I needed to figure out how to write a long thing. I hoped it would be, but that wasn't what I was thinking about as I was writing it. Um, and I guess now I've passed through the looking glass and if I make another book, it will be published probably, unless my publishers mm -hmm. hate it. Um, and so like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure what I hope for now other than to continue enjoying it. Like I, one of the ways of working every day is doing this kind of cognitive dissonance exercise in not thinking about the final product as much as possible and just focusing on the process and really enjoying the process. Like, yeah, I really like writing and I really like drawing. So I think that makes it easier to do. Um, but the book I'm working on now is called Canon. Uh, it, I'm not writing it entirely as a script and then drawing it. I'm writing it in chunks and then drawing it in chunks. Um, and, you know, wandering around the house talking to myself a lot as I do it. 
Um, it's about a couple of friends who have been friends for a very long time and are grappling with the the sticky question of like, you know, what do you do when you when you really love someone and you're not sure if you like them anymore? <laughs> um, so, so the easy, simple question. Yeah, just the, it's just another easy, simple question to chew on. And, you know, uh-huh. like figuring out what their friendship is these days, like what its role is and, and how to how to be towards each other and definitely, you know, trying to chew on um, getting to know each other for who they are now when there's all this weighty context behind them. And I, yeah, they're both dating other people too and there's storylines that go off to the romantic relationships that they're in, but I really wanted to focus on a platonic friendship um, that's also queer and crappy and stale. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited for that. I just, I really, like, I, I love so much that this feels like a story that I've never, ever read before, but that I maybe have sort of caught glimpses of, um, in the world, but that I haven't seen on the page before. And I'm just like, so thrilled that, so thrilled that it exists and, and that, uh, that it's out there. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for really great questions. It's like, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. (laughs) Thank you. Um, well, this has been great and I can't wait to see, what happens next i also feel like the oh the little the i i stumbled upon your therapy um not your therapy but like your your um uh, comic advice uh and (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i just vote like well yeah like i basically did i burst into tears immediately at the panel that was like you are still uh, of value, even if you are not like in service to someone. Sure, I did. Aww. And it was great. And I loved it. <laughs> I loved it so much. It's like very generous and very sweet. And uh, I can't wait for you to also become sort of just like a casual therapist to all the people who want to <laughs> buy your work and support your books. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, Lee. Thank I hope you. you have a lovely day. You too. Okay. Bye.